Thank you, band, choir, praise team, as they make their way back to their seats. Uh, I would ask you this week to um, be in prayer for Marie Chain. Uh, Marie went back into the hospital yesterday morning. She's been having a few issues on and off, but I want you to be praying for her. She actually had a couple of stents put in yesterday. And so uh, even though Marie is not with us on a regular basis here in church, we know that she is still a very big part of our church family. Um, and uh, we just want to be lifting her in prayer. So if you will, be praying for Marie this week as she recovers following that procedure. <clears throat> We're starting into that sermon series we've been talking about for a little while. I hope it's not anticlimactic for you. I was sitting down furiously last night making some some last-minute notes about this particular topic and uh, where we're going, what we're doing here in this sermon series. Let me lay it out for you a little bit. We're taking eight weeks, and we're going through this sermon series. We've entitled it Crossroads, Following a Biblical Path Through Today's Difficult Issues. And we're going to be looking at some things in our culture, in our society, here in particular in America, that uh, we need to have a response to, that we need to have some way that we respond to in a biblical sense, following a biblical path through today's difficult issues. That's what we want to do. We want to be talking about these issues in our culture, not from a, not from a uh, political position, not from a party standpoint, not even from a, oh, I think so standpoint, but following it from a biblical standpoint, approaching these different topics, speaking on these issues, using scripture to state this is why we stand where we stand. This is why we believe what we believe. This is the core, this is our foundation for um, all of these things. Now, um, these are some of the topics that we're going to talk about in the eight weeks ahead. Today, we're going to talk about the foundation of Christian beliefs. That's what we're going to be talking about, foundation of Christian beliefs. What is, what is the foundation for all of this anyway? What, what is at the heart of this? What is the foundation for all of our Christian beliefs? So we're going to talk about that today. Now, next week, we're going to talk about humanity, civility, reconciliation, this, this three-legged stool, this tripod on which all of our responses need to hinge, humanity, civility, and reconciliation. We'll talk about that a little more next Sunday, but just letting you know. Uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about biblical marriage and family. We're going to talk about biblical sexuality, transgenderism, homosexuality, premarital sex. We're going to talk about, in the middle of uh, October, the sanctity of human life, why is human life important anyway? We're going to talk about topics today like abortion, euthanasia, other topics related to that, the sanctity of human life. We're going to talk about racism. It is one of the biggest issues in America today, this idea uh, that divides us, the races. We're also going to talk about migrants, aliens, and asylum seekers. What does the Bible have to say about that? There's an awful lot that is out there in the public arena today in the political world. And we're going to talk about socialism and Marxism. Even though that's not in the Bible, there are some principles that the Bible speaks to that uh, we need to be aware of to have a response in regard to those topics. Those are the eight things that we're going to be talking about in these weeks ahead, just to kind of give you uh, a little oversight of where we're headed. But today we're talking about the foundation of Christian beliefs, the foundation of Christian beliefs. Maybe you'll recognize this building. Maybe you won't. It's been in the news a little bit. Um, it is a West Coast building. It is not here on the East Coast. This building is located in San Francisco, California. You may have heard about it. 
People paid a million and a half dollars for a 1,500 to 2,000 square foot condo in this building. The name of the building is called Millennium Towers. Now, the reason that it's popped up in the news is because the Millennium Towers, uh, you know, it has a little bit of an issue that is affecting its value. It is sinking. And not only is it sinking, it is tilting. This building in the heart of San Francisco, where they charged a million and a half dollars for a little condo, is sinking and falling. And the simple reason for it is when they put in the foundation for this multi-level story building, I don't know how many stories it is, you can Google it and see how many stories it is, this building that is enormously tall, located in downtown San Francisco, when they put in the foundation and the footers for this building, you would think that anybody with an ounce of common sense would know if you're going to build a building this big, you had better put it on some bedrock, which they didn't dig down to. They put it on firm soil, but in that section of the country where there are tremors and shakes, that firm soil with that much weight on it, if there is any kind of seismic activity, which in California, whoever's heard of such a thing, the ground will shift and the building will start to collapse. Now, if we have the sense that we should be building a building like this on some firm rock, and we even have a biblical a teaching of Jesus. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built it on the sand when floods came up and washed it away. We have that teaching in Scripture. If we know to build one building on firm rock, how much more important is it to build a larger structure, a much more important structure, a much more valuable structure to build within the church upon that which is unshakable, that which we stand firm upon, to build upon the foundation, to build everything that we believe, everything that we espouse, everything that we teach, we must have a firm foundation that we build those things on. And that foundation is not found in the traditions of our parents, our grandparents, the traditions of the church. That firm foundation is not found in the Declaration of Independence because those things are fleeting. Those things have only been around for a few decades, back to as far as a few hundred years. But we're talking about a foundation that spans all of time. If we're going to talk about all of these issues in a culture where the culture is shifting, where any seismic shift or any seismic activity happens in the moral or the spiritual world, we had better build our foundation upon something that is solid that will never shake, something that can never be broken loose. And that absolutely has to be, for the church today, the Word of God. The foundation of our Christian beliefs has to be rooted in Scripture. It must be 
rooted in scripture. It can't be rooted in popular thought. It can't be rooted in cultural teaching. It can't be rooted in what the latest poll has to say because those things shift. We know and we have seen those shifts in our lifetimes. You live long enough and that which you were taught knowing to be absolutely morally true will shift over time. It always happens. Theologians even have a term for this. They call it theological drift. Over time, we will drift from what is a core truth given enough time and enough cultural push. There will be a theological drift that takes place. Now, as we start this series, as we talk about things like biblical sexuality, we had better begin by talking about the Bible. We had better begin by talking about why we believe what we do. If we're going to talk about biblical marriage and family, we better have an understanding of Scripture and why we believe what we do about Scripture. If we're going to talk about humanity being created in the image of God, civility and reconciling people to Jesus Christ, we better have an understanding of what the Scripture has to say about those topics. That's why the foundation of Christian beliefs, the Scripture, has to be the core of everything that happens in this series. Everything that we talk about from here on, whether it be racism, the sanctity of human life, migrants, aliens, asylum seekers, socialism, Marxism, sexuality, homosexuality, transgender, premarital sex, marriage, family, any of that has to come from the Word of God. Every bit of it. Now, we've seen all kinds of reasons. We see things in our culture why this shift is taking place. We see there's a changing culture. There's a changing worldview. We see that there's a growing religious pluralism around us. There's a growing secularism. People are less inclined to the teachings of Scripture. Those, ultimately, those are not the compromise of Christian beliefs. A growing religious pluralism cannot compromise Christian beliefs. A growing secularism cannot compromise Christian beliefs. A changing worldview cannot compromise Christian beliefs if we don't compromise the Word of God. At the root of all of these things that are taking place in our culture, there's a changing view of Scripture. There's a battle in our culture. And that battle has seeped over into the church. It comes down to a battle for the Bible. So today we're going to talk about three things, three things that we're going to talk about in the time that we've got today. All right, these three things are, we're going to define what biblical authority is. We're going to talk about uh, biblical authority, define and discuss that. We're going to define and discuss biblical dependability. Why why can we rely on Scripture? What is it about Scripture that we can rely on? why, Why is it that this is so trustworthy? And then we're going to define and discuss biblical timelessness, relevance, biblical relevance. Now, I will say that the reason why we've got our small groups in place and why we're encouraging you to join in one of those small groups is because there's only so much that I, so much time that I can take to talk about these topics. There's going to be more of an opportunity to discuss these in depth in our small groups if you take the time, even if you're not able to make every week. That's okay. Sign up for one, go when you can, and it'll just help you to dig deeper into some of these topics. But today, as we talk about the foundation of Christian beliefs, we're going to discuss biblical authority. We're going to discuss biblical dependability and biblical relevance, those three things in the brief time that I've got. Now, first of all, we want to talk about biblical 
authority, biblical authority. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this is um, our core statement here at Newbridge Baptist Church. In Newbridge Baptist Church, we have 10 core beliefs. Now, these 10 core beliefs are drawn from a larger writing in Baptist life, Southern Baptist life, called the Baptist Faith and Message. They've got some things included in there that, you know, it's not that we disagree with them, it's just we don't feel like they're critically important compared to some other things. For instance, in the Baptist Faith and Message, it has a a little article, a little teaching in there about education and saying that education is a priority, education is is important. Well, if we're going to talk about education and we're going to compare that as a core belief compared to what we believe about Scripture or what we believe about Christ, well, I would say that those two are way up here and what we do talk about with education is, you know, that's really far down the list. Um, not saying that we shouldn't be teaching, I'm just saying it's not really a core belief. So 10 core beliefs that we've got here at Newbridge, and this is the one that we have listed first. And whenever I do um, Membership Matters, I, I tell people that I had somebody ask this question of me uh, early on when I started here at Newbridge in one of the Membership Matters classes that we were teaching. They said, why are we starting talking about the Bible Why aren't we talking about Jesus first? Why aren't we talking about God first, who God is? Why are we starting with the Bible? It seems like we're elevating Scripture above God. It's a valid question, but I think it also has a very valid answer. And the answer is simply this. What do you know? What do you know with an absolute certainty? What do you know about Jesus Christ that you did not learn through Scripture? Because if there is something that you know about Jesus Christ that you didn't learn through Scripture, I would say you might want to take that kernel of truth a little lightly. Because what we know about God is revealed through God's Word. God chose to reveal Himself through His Word. God chose to reveal who He is and His redemptive purposes through His Word. This is why we say at Newbridge, the Holy Bible was written by men, but it was inspired, divinely inspired, and it's God's revelation of Himself to man. The Bible is the way that God shows himself to mankind. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author. Those men who wrote down the Bible were not its author. God was its author. The Holy Spirit was its author. Scripture affirms that, confirms that, that the Bible is written by the Spirit and written down by man. Has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and totally trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, therefore is and will remain the end of the world, the true center of Christian union. It is the center of Christian union. It is what binds us together. It is the core of what holds all Christians together. If the Bible is not the core, if the Bible and what it teaches about Jesus and what it teaches about God and what it teaches about salvation and what it teaches about humanity and the fall of humanity, if that's not at the center, then all of Christianity starts to drift. It is the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. If you believe something about God, filter it through the word of God. If the word of God affirms that, says that, believe it, hold on to it. If the word of God contradicts that, jettison it, get rid of it, because everything needs to be filtered through the word of God. 
All scripture is testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now that is our core statement. That's our, one of our core beliefs, our belief about scripture. Yes, this does come from the Baptist faith and message. We included that. We dropped it in without any alterations and changes, though there are a few in our core beliefs that we did alter for us here at Newbridge Church. This comes from that. So, when we look at this statement, um, this is pretty important to who we are as a church. It's pretty important to, to who we are as, as believers. You know, we know several scriptures, you probably heard several scriptures that testify to this fact. And in fact, at the end of the Baptist faith and message, there are many of these scriptures that are included there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, that the child of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Bible also says this in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I testify everyone who hears of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written. It says this in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. It says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this verse, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus had something to say about this. Jesus, speaking about the Word of God, now he was talking about the Old Testament revelation, but he was speaking in general about the Word of God too. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, he said, uh, I don't think that I came to abolish, that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't. I came to fulfill it. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, not one dot, not one little mark, not one tittle, not one stroke of the pen, not one part of this will by any means pass from the law till everything is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now the Bible says all of those things. And I want to reaffirm here. I just want to, I want to reaffirm this. I want to make sure that there's no that there's no ambiguity. I absolutely 100% am wholly and totally convinced. I believe with all my heart that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, truth without any mixture of error. I absolutely believe that. That's why this next phrase, and I say that this next phrase may seem incongruous, okay? I absolutely believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. But if I were an unbeliever, if I did not believe, you could not prove to me 
that the Bible is true. If I were an unbeliever, you couldn't prove to me that the Bible is true. Pastor, you just said that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Yes, absolutely it is, and I am 100% convinced of that. But if I were an unbeliever, you couldn't convince me, you couldn't prove to me that the Bible is true. Now, you may be able to take some archaeological proofs, and you may be able to pull in those archaeological proofs, and you may be able to say, hey, look, when the Bible says this city existed, the city of Jericho was in this spot, and it was located here, and archaeologists have dug, and they find a city that is there that has been built over some generations later, and they say, hey, that might be Jericho, and it verifies and it affirms this part of Scripture that's written there. That is something that adds to the veracity of Scripture. You could look at some historical writings outside of Scripture, and when Josephus mentions the name of Jesus and that he was put on trial for sedition among the Jews, it adds veracity that this person, Jesus, actually lived and existed. And he did. And we hold to that truth. When you look in Scripture and you see certain things that are included in Scripture to talk about the history and the archaeology and where places are located, yes, we can verify those things. And I am 100% convinced also that there is science that backs up the teaching of a young earth and a global flood affected this planet that we live on and where scientists would say we're billions of years old. I believe that there's science out there that tells us we're not billions of years old, we're thousands of years old and this earth was affected by a flood. And that our sun, which they say is billions and billions and billions of years old, if it was billions and billions of years old, would have already burned out. There's science out there that teaches those things, though some have contrary science. You couldn't prove to me that the Bible is absolutely the Word of God. How does somebody prove God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that anyone who believes on him will never, ever die, but will have eternal life. How do you prove that? Well, our proof comes with our testimony of faith. Now, these other things add to the veracity of Scripture, but when we start talking about theology, when we start talking about the mysticism, the supernatural included in Scripture, how much of that can we prove? I mean, can we prove that Jesus walked on water? Can we prove that Peter walked across the water to go join him? Can we prove that Jesus opened blind eyes, that he opened deaf ears? Is that something we can prove? We see these other sources that verify other parts of Scripture, but if it comes down to it, in this lost world, if somebody is an unbeliever and they choose not to believe, they're not going to believe. 
And so when we talk in these next several weeks and we talk about the truth of Scripture and we talk about what Scripture has to say, let's keep in mind that most of this message is aimed, in this series of messages, is not aimed at the world to try to convince them. It's aimed at the church to try to convince us because the problem exists in the church that somewhere in here, we who are believers, we have started to doubt the word of God. We have started to doubt the truth of scripture. Hey, if there are people out there who still believe that the earth is flat, And regardless of what proof is laid in front of them, they'll say, I don't care what you tell me, the earth is flat. If there are people like that with all the proof that is laid before them, and you can't convince them otherwise, there are going to be some people who are just not convinced no matter how much proof you lay in front of them about the Word of God. If there are people out there who think that the moon landing, the lunar landing, was faked. And they are absolutely convinced that the lunar landing did not occur, no matter how much evidence is laid in front of them. Do you think that there will be 100% agreement if we lay all of the truths and evidence of Scripture, regardless of how it was affirmed and confirmed in my life, in front of them, that they will believe? So when we start this sermon series, it's important for us to understand. When we talk about the authority of Scripture, we're talking about the authority of Scripture within the church. Because if in the church we can't agree that Scripture has authority over us, if we can't agree that Scripture is infallible, inerrant, that is truth without any mixture of error, how are we ever going to respond in a biblical way to a lost world that doesn't know Jesus Christ? That's where the issue lies. And this is part of what Scripture testifies to itself. In Romans chapter 10, it says, verses 16 through 17, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They heard the gospel, but they've not all obeyed it. They've not all responded to it. For Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed our report? Now, Isaiah is writing about a group of people, the Israelites, who had the word of God and heard it over and over and over and over again, and yet never responded in faith. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here, Hebrews chapter 11, I think, says it a little more pointedly. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, The evidence of things we can't see. Faith is that. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Now this is verse 3. Listen very closely. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. (laughs) By faith, we understand God spoke the world into being. Can I give you a scientific premise saying, here, here's the final authoritative truth. No, I can't. 
I can point to other things that affirm Scripture. But ultimately, we're talking about a faith book. When we talk about biblical authority, we're talking about a book that we have begun to believe in God and is teaching from Scripture because we responded in faith to what we first encountered through Scripture. (coughs) Now, biblical authority, biblical dependability, and also biblical relevance, they are related together. They're all tied together. So I want to talk for just a moment about biblical dependability. Talking about biblical authority, these are all related, and we'll come back to this idea of biblical authority in just a second. Biblical dependability. Um, If you were shopping online, if you were shopping online, and you were, say, looking for a new TV online. This is an LG UHD 4K 65-inch diagonal across TV sold by Best Buy. If you're going online and you are looking for some kind of product, what are some things that you would do as you looked for a product that you could trust in? Now, some of you are eggheads and do all your research. Some of you are impulse buyers and you say, hey, that's a pretty TV. I'd like to have that one. And yet some of you will do all kinds of research online. You go to Consumer Reports or other places and do reviews. But in general, if you're looking online, someplace like Best Buy, Amazon, Walmart, and you're looking for something that's reliable, you would look for something like this TV that gets a five-star rating. It gets a five-star rating. You ought to go out and buy this TV because it gets a five-star rating by all of those who reviewed this TV. All two of them. I mean, does does that make a difference? It gets a five-star rating from everybody who reviewed it. So why can't we trust it? Well, maybe we could, but we probably ought to do a little more research because somewhere in here, the number of people who are verifying a thing makes a difference. And so when we talk about biblical dependability, there is this question that rises to the surface when we talk about the dependability of Scripture and simply this, how many witnesses does it make to make a testimony reliable? How many witnesses does it take to make a testimony reliable? Now, it's interesting. I'm doing a little research online with this particular topic because I wanted to find out what some in the um, criminal justice profession would say would take, how many witnesses it would take to make uh, a testimony reliable. And it's actually very interesting. In our culture, you know how many, how many witnesses it takes to make a testimony reliable? One. I mean, if a prosecutor gets one eyewitness testimony, that's a big deal. And they'll usually get, usually get a conviction if they have one 
eyewitness testimony. Now, if somebody actually didn't see the event, the difference between an eyewitness testimony and a corroborative testimony is this. An eyewitness testimony, the person goes into the gas station. Somebody comes into the gas station while they're in the gas station. They rob the gas station. This person sees their face, sees them robbing the gas station, and then that person runs out. That's an eyewitness. A corroborative witness is that person who pulls up in front of the gas station, is pumping gas, sees somebody go in with a mask on, carrying a gun, and he walks in, and a few minutes later, the place is robbed and the alarms are going off, and the same guy walks out wearing a a mask and a gun. Did that person outside see that person rob the gas station? No, but they're a corroborative witness. Do you know how many corroborative witnesses it takes to make a testimony, that person's testimony, credible? One. It doesn't have to be verified by anybody else. Now, it's interesting that in our culture, we have people who are convicted on the word of one person. We have people who are convicted on the word of one who is a corroborating witness. And I'm not criticizing our criminal justice system. I'm just saying that somewhere in here, there is this disconnect among people, even in the church, because we want to say, well, I'm just not sure I can trust it. Even though there were over 500 people who saw Jesus after he came out of the tomb, what prosecutor wouldn't absolutely drool over 500 eyewitness testimonies. We hear people say, well, I'm just not sure that I can trust Scripture. You know it's written down by men. How do we even know that it's accurate? How do we even know that what we've got now is what they had then? Well, you can't trust Scripture because there isn't any way to really know. Do we have the originals? No, we don't. We don't have the originals. But then again, have you ever paused to think about some of those writings, some of those books that are put out that we don't have the originals of? Some of the writings of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. Did you know that <coughs> one, of the, um, one of the books that was critical in regard to teaching history the history of the Roman wars, that that book, the earliest copy of that manuscript that is used in teaching about the Roman Roman wars, the earliest copy is around 980 A.D. Do you know how many centuries had passed since the fall of the Roman Empire? Eight centuries had passed since this book was written the earliest copy of this book that was found, and yet scholars say, hey, this is authoritative because we found this book, and look, here it is. It's 900, and it was written around 900 and something A.D. So this is authoritative. Let me ask you, some of you have been through Membership Matters, you know, because I mentioned this. Do you know how many early copies we have available, not me, but we biblical scholars have available of the Bible. 
They may have 20 early copies of Aristotle's writing. They may have 50 early copies of Socrates. They may have 75 early copies of Plato. Do you know how many early copies we have of Scripture? We have almost 6,000 full manuscripts of Scripture that can be dated back to around 100 A.D. Do we have the original? Nope. But we got 6,000 full copies and multiple thousands of other fragments of books that are out there where if somebody was writing something that wasn't accurate, don't you think these other 6,000 people who are writing copies of that same manuscript, they didn't have a printing press back then, they wrote it by hand. Don't you think somebody would say, hey, that's wrong. But we have verified copy after copy after copy of early manuscripts of Scripture. Why is this important? Because it's a witness to the truth of God's Word. Is Scripture dependable? Absolutely. You better believe it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I will hold to this truth till my dying day. We have biblical authority, biblical dependability, and we also have biblical relevance. Let me talk for just a moment about biblical relevance. I'm going to wrap this up. The Bible is a faith book. The Bible is a faith book. It's not to say that the Bible doesn't speak on matters of science, that the Bible doesn't speak on matters of history, that the Bible doesn't speak on matters of spirituality. The Bible is a faith book, though. We receive it by faith. We accept it by faith. Now, there have been those who struggled with accepting this book by faith. This is actually a picture of a book that was written by a famous American. Your third president, president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, had a hard time accepting all the things in Scripture. And so he actually sat down and he wrote the title of this, I'll read it for you, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, Extracted Textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. Nobody ever accused Thomas Jefferson of being a dumb guy. He was smart. He could translate from the Latin. He could translate from the Greek. Also, French and English, some of those writings before his time. He didn't speak Hebrew. What's this world coming to? Thomas Jefferson didn't speak Hebrew to translate. But he translated from the Greek, the Latin, the French, and uh, the English. And he took those four Gospels, and he wrote this book. Because Thomas Jefferson had a hard time accepting the supernatural. He had a hard time accepting the miraculous of Jesus. And so he sat down and took all four Gospels, and he scratched out every miracle. He eliminated every reference to a supernatural God. He cut out from his Bible any reference to Jesus being divine. And in the end, he ended up with this, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It became one of his two actual writings. And this one ended up being 
a book which talked about none of the miracles of Jesus, none of the supernatural work of Jesus, none of the death of Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins, none of the hope of eternity in heaven, and no promise of eternal life forever. What he ended up with were some pithy statements of Jesus about how we are supposed to act morally. That's what he got. Now, this was 200 years ago. Surely we don't have that issue as much today, do we? And Thomas Jefferson was borderline on the church. Back in that day, there were people who were involved in the church, but we don't have that issue in the church today, right? Well, the only problem with that is we do. All you have to do is do a little research, dig in, um, and you could find on Google there's a group it was called the Jesus Seminar. Back in 1985, the Jesus Seminar was founded. It was founded by the West Star Institute. And the West Star Institute brought in theologians, biblical scholars, Christian teachings from all different expressions of Christian tradition, brought them together, and here was their goal. They wanted to be able to take Scripture, and they wanted to be able to see which parts of Scripture were completely accurate and which parts were a little more questionable and which parts we probably ought to dispose of altogether. So here's how they did it. These Bible scholars that they pulled in, 50-plus, 70-plus Bible scholars that they pulled in from all across different spectrums, the Jesus Seminar, they gave them colored beads, and they sat down and they would read a passage of Scripture, and they would say to these theologians, okay, if this is completely, totally, reliably trustworthy and true, put in this color bead. If you have some questions about it, put in this color bead. And if you absolutely doubt this altogether, put in this color bead. That was it. This is how they determined whether the Bible was actual and factual and true. They had 50-plus seminary theologians come in and sit down and put in the right color bead for whether they think it was totally true or not true at all or kind of in the middle. And you can imagine what kind of mess this came up with because they had people who weren't even Christians sitting in deciding and determining whether the Bible is actually true or not. Oh, they were Bible theologians, but they were atheists. What color do you think they put in when they read something in Scripture that said about Jesus being the only way, the only truth, the only life? What do you think they put in when it said Jesus died and he rose again on the third day? When we begin here, when we start by asking the question, how much of this is reliable and true? And we actually start to entertain the possibility that it's not reliable, that it's not true. If we start eliminating portions of Scripture, where do we draw the line? Where do we stop? It's like Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. He said, you foolish Galatians, you started with your faith in Christ, but now you've reverted from that to something that really doesn't have anything to do with Christ at all. <coughs> if Paul were to write to the church today, he would probably say something very similar. I think the Holy Spirit, these would be the Holy Spirit's word. You started by believing about Jesus through what you learned in Scripture. Why have you abandoned this Scripture where you learned about Jesus Christ? 
Why have you walked away from the truth of this word? Why are you scared to stand on the truth of this word? Why is it that we have seated in our culture, we have seated the discussion, and we have handed it over to them, and we are not responding with the word of God? Because all of those seven topics that are left in the weeks to come, all of those things have biblical responses. Why aren't we making the response? Why isn't the church making the response? Why aren't we saying what the Bible has to say? Because somewhere in here, I'm afraid that in the church today, you stop trusting in the authority and dependability and the relevance of this book. And when this book goes away, we might as well shut the doors. This is the foundation for everything we believe. And if we're going to develop a response to our world as they struggle with these issues in culture, our response had better come from here. Not a political party, not a family thought, not some mystical teaching from some foreign religion. It had better be from the Word of God because that's the only foundation that will be able to stand against the storms that continue to come and plague the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in your Word today. And I pray. Even as we here study in your word, that we would be convinced, secured in our heart, that the testimony of those thousands who recorded those early copies of your word, that the testimony of those hundreds who saw you personally, Jesus, after you rose from the dead, that the affirmation of those archaeological finds and historical finds, that the testimony of your word itself would speak to our heart. Lord, I know that ultimately for the person who is an unbeliever and has chosen not to believe no matter what, I can't prove your word to them. But Lord, I pray that for the believer, for us, for those inside the church, that you would affirm your word, that you would build within our hearts this platform, this foundation, this starting point from which we are not going to be shaken, that this Scripture is truth without any mixture of error. That it is profitable for everything we do in the faith. And Lord, today we receive this word by faith. In the name of the Savior we proclaim, Jesus.